Hey everybody, before we get into today's exciting interview with a panel of residency program directors about the ophthalmology match, I want to let you know about a survey being run in collaboration with team members from around the country that asks how you, a medical student, feel you're being impacted by COVID-19 for your application cycle. We hope that the results will not only give program directors deeper insights into how you are being affected by COVID-19, but also give them information they can use to create a more fair and smooth application cycle. If you can help us with this survey, you can find a link to it in the description below. Okay, now back to the episode. Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Usually we review high-yield topics for the board's clinic or OCAP, but this week we have a special topic. Yeah, right now it's definitely a weird time now. Clinics were closed, surgeries were postponed, and the sun just, for some of us, didn't really want to set on an interminably delayed testing season. But it must be even stranger to be a medical student now, especially if you're one applying to ophthalmology residency. So to that end, we wanted to bring aboard three great program directors to answer some questions, many of which came from those of you in the audience. If you're interested in our guest panel's experiences and discussions about a career in medical education and what it's like to be a program director, then you're in luck because these prolific and in-demand folks were just on Dr. J. Schreeder's podcast straight from the cutter's mouth, talking about that exact topic. For right now, let's start our episode by introducing our very special guest panel. In alphabetical order, we have... Dr. Jessica Chow, who is residency program director at Yale, uh, an assistant professor, and she did her residency at Duke and her fellowship in cornea at Baskin Palmer. Next, we have Dr. Nandini Gandhi, who is the residency program director at UC Davis, associate professor there, and she did a residency at University of Iowa and her fellowship in pediatric ophthalmology at Duke. And then Last but not least, we have Dr. Fasca Warreta, who's the program director at the Wilmer Eye Institute, where she's an assistant professor, and she did a residency also at Wilmer and their fellowship in cornea at Bascom. So we'd like to thank all of you for your very precious time. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for having us, Ben and Andrew. All our privilege, really, and thank you for coming on to answer all these questions. So uh, without further ado, we're going to break things up in the topic. So let's First, start with kind of more general questions about the application. We'll start with Dr. Chow. Can you describe the type of resident that you think thrives at your program? And what in the application do you look for to try to find them? Yeah, so at Yale, we really look for people who are self-motivated and are interested in learning. You know, we don't set a very strict reading schedule and residents are allowed to learn at their own pace here. So the ones who do well and succeed are people who are intellectually curious and who are constantly seeking to learn more and are not satisfied with their knowledge. And I actually think that this type of self-directed learner is the type of person who's going to make a great physician because, as you know, medicine is a career of lifelong learning. But on top of that, the qualities that I look for in a resident are integrity, honesty, maturity, selflessness, and compassion. And these types of people tend to be great team players, and they also make great doctors. So how do we find these people? Honestly, it's kind of a holistic review of the applications, the personal statements, the letters of recommendation. And then we're able to tell a few things from the interview, although it's kind of hard, actually. And I think it will be even harder this year with virtual interviews. Yeah, well, yeah and virtual interviews, we're, we're definitely going to get, get, um, gonna get back to in a bit. Um, Dr. Gandhi, any significant deviation or not deviation, but any, uh, how, how, do you, how would you answer that question? Is the same type of resident thrive at your program, do you think, or are there any differences? I would echo a lot of the same things that Dr. Chow just mentioned. We really do look for residents who like to take initiative in their own learning. I think we all have somewhat structured of a curriculum, but we can only teach so much in three years, and ophthalmology is far broader than just a three-year curriculum. And so a resident that is curious about something and takes their learning into their own hands can crack open a whole new door of learning and generate conversations with faculty members that get us all excited about learning. So we really look for residents that have, that have done that. Again, as, as Jessica mentioned, it is hard to, to figure out exactly how to find those kinds of people, but past performance does at some level predict future performance. And so if there's examples of that that come across in either the interview or 
letters of recommendation, um, I think that's a nice indication of the fact that that individual would go on to do such things in their residency as well. Great. And then, Dr. Rutter, what do you look for in your um, residence when you're looking for who to give an interview to? And how do you try to find those people? Yeah, so we get over 450 applications and we interview about 40. So um, it's not easy to sort of go through all the applications and decide. And I know, you know, we're always so impressed with the applicants that come and interview with us. So our process for selecting has evolved over time. At this time, we have um, each application is reviewed by two different people on the committee. And then I also do the final review. And we look for different things in applications and Every reviewer is different, but I think just to echo some of what Jess and Nandini said, we look for people who have shown evidence that they take a lot of initiative, are stellar in many different aspects, not only in, I think clinical grades is, is very important because that's sort of beyond board scores, gives you an idea of how they've done on a sustained rotation and how they take care of patients, which is most important. You know, we look at their research activities, leadership activities, kind of community service, um, are they a team player? Um, so all of this, we try to get through the personal statement, letters of recommendation, and so forth. But I, I will say it is it is one of the most difficult jobs I think I have as a program director because there's so many good applicants out there. And so um, it's it's certainly a challenge. And we're always trying to improve the process of the, the interview screening. There's still a lot that we can do better with, I think. You mentioned, all of you, to some extent, elements of each application, like personal statements and uh, letters of recommendation. I wonder if there are any elements that you think might be generally overrated amongst all of them, or maybe those that might be underrated. Sure. I mean, I think historically, um, in ophthalmology, given that it is a competitive, one of the most competitive matches, I think, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on step one. And so I think, you know, step one now becoming pass-fail is going to change that. And I think that's for the better. Because we know that you know, you're st- there's so many things that go into making a good resident, and a step just one score is not sort of doesn't predict who's going to be your best resident. So I'm glad that we're putting less emphasis on step one um, by making it pass fail. So I think that's one of the overrated things. Um, underrated, um, I think the clinical grades um, for me are probably one of the most important things that I, I look at. And a lot of schools, you know, maybe pass fail or have some grading system, which it's hard to sort of distinguish what it is. But I do think as step one becomes pass fail, clinical grades will be more important. And that again really shows how you, you know, how they take care of patients. And it's it's not just their their performance on a shelf exam, right? It's your sustained performance over rotation. So I think that for me is very important. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree, too. I think the clinical rotation assessments are really valuable. It's not just how you performed on one day of your life, but rather how you performed over time. So um, I find them to be very helpful. And is there anything when you're reviewing an application that you see frequently that's sort of a pet peeve of yours? Anytime somebody has a typo or grammar error or spelling error, I feel like that should not occur in an application because you should be proofreading it. And if you're not detail-oriented enough to pick that up in your application to be an ophthalmologist, then you may not be detail-oriented enough to be a surgeon. Don't misspell ophthalmology. That's pretty important. (laughs) (laughs) And I also like to see evidence of sort of humility in the application. Like if you see, if like it seems like an applicant may be boasting or just not humble about something for me, that can be, that's a pet peeve. I know this is kind of potentially unfair to ask, but is there one thing that might be overall weighted more heavily or kind of really make somebody pass a threshold or something for offering an interview? I mean, historically, we've looked at, we've looked at step scores. We've looked at clinical grades, the strength of letter recommendations, um, and the, re- and the research, the, sort of the quality of their research and what role they had in it. So those are sort of things that we've emphasized. Like I said, it's changing more. With step, I think the step in, in the coming years, I think we're going to emphasize the step less, the step one at least, um, less. Yeah, um, one of the things is that I realized recently that a lot of the criteria that we use in screening applications, there, for example, step scores, letters of recommendation, even the dean's letter, there are known disparities in terms of uh, students who are like considered underrepresented minorities there are, there are known disparities in those 
and the language that is used to describe those applicants is sometimes different. And we are just more aware of that now. And so I'm trying to actually be aware of those disparities and to screen appropriately. Mm, that's a, very that's a really good point, point Jess. Yeah. We, yeah. we don't use a strict point-based system, but I think there they are a lot of those metrics are used as guideposts. But uh, I think to the point that everybody is making, I think the points tell us something, but I do try to look individually at applications to the extent possible. It's as Oscar was saying, we get a lot of applications and it's a tough job, but try to look at applications as holistically as possible because there are some unique aspects of an applicant that, you know, quote, may tip them over in addition to all the metrics that we've discussed. In addition, you know, I also look at whether or not an applicant has a particular connection or interest or some sort of reason to be in in the area where our program is. If they have family in the area, if they happen to mention that in their application, then I know that they may have more of an interest in our program. And so I may be more likely to offer them an interview. That that's that also helps. And I think it will be even more important this year, especially because I can't imagine as a program director that someone might rank a program highly if they've never even visited the city before. Yep. Thanks for those those responses. Shifting gears a bit, we got questions from Twitter about two kind of broad groups of applicants. So the first were DOs. The the person submitting question pointed out that DOs, the doctors of osteopathic medicine, now represent one out of four medical students and now train under a single accreditation system with MDs as of 2020. I think you know that that's been in the works for a bit. As of 2020, it's a single system. Their question was, do program directors anticipating interviewing and taking more DOs with this change in the system, especially given how the, the match rate for DOs into ophthalmology traditionally has been um, fairly uh, relatively low compared to MDs? Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, we just, at Boomer, um, we have not had a DO uh, accepted into our residency in the past, and I don't know if we've interviewed them. Because I guess I've been on the committee for four years, and during that time, we haven't interviewed them. We do t- accept DO applications, though, and that we have that on our website. And I do meet with DO students um, who sometimes want to do away, uh, away rotations at Wilmer, for example. So I've met with a couple to try to sort of advise them on how to you know, go about applying for, ophthalm- for an ophthalmology residency. So I think that's important. In that situation, it may be important for them to do a ways and sort of have connections with ophthalmology program directors before they apply, just because, you know, they are, as you mentioned, you know, they have a um, lower match rate. So and they're at higher risk for um, for not matching. So I think it's good that they're going to have the same accreditation system, but I think we're going to have to work with them, maybe get them exposure to research, do away rotations at, at our institutes to, to help them be comp- to become competitive. And they and, take step one and, as well, right? And they usually take our steps. So then that sort of standardized them with our MD students. But now we're not going to have step scores for them to sort of be compared with. So that'll be a, a challenge. That sounds like it's going to be complicated when that change happens. We had questions from international medical graduates. You know, their, their question was very similar. What are the chances for you to match an international medical graduate into an American ophthalmology residency and an, another question along with that is some field that a research year or significant research time, especially in the United States, is basically required. Is that true for you or each of you or not? I think that one of the things that makes IMGs stand out is their research background, because usually they come to us with incredible CVs, with a lot of research experience, and that's really how they get a lot of their letters of recommendation from ophthalmologist in the United States, because it's kind of hard, I think, to get an an international rotation or a clinical rotation in ophthalmology as an international graduate. But I I do think that the process may be more complicated in the future for IMGs because of the joint or integrated internship. So if, if it's an integrated internship, it means that the ophthalmology program director is running all four years, including the intern year. But if it's a joint internship, then it means that the internship director is usually the program that you're partnering with, whether that be internal medicine, general surgery, pediatrics, etc. And so they're going to have some say as to who they accept into the program. And if the international medical graduate does not have a clinical experience in that particular field, that may be a disadvantage. 
Yeah, I, I don't definitely agree with you, um, Jess. So we at Wilmer, we do take IMGs, um, not infrequently. We matched um, one last year and one this year as well. And I think, you know, they have a lot to offer. They're very talented. And they all the ones who have matched with us have all done a research year. And that's sort of to solidify their, um, you know, their, they, so both of them came and did their research year and they both did two years of research actually. And again, they both matched at Wilmer. Both of their research years were at Wilmer. I do agree with Jess that there's going to, there's going to be challenges as starting now. And one was, one, one is COVID. So the whole immigration visa process has been slowed down so that people from out of the country, it's very hard. Like I was supposed to have new research fellows from abroad and none of them have been able to come this year. So yeah. And then number two is like Jess said, the integrated internship, that's going to be huge because our internal medicine colleagues, it seems they want, um, they want students with U.S. clinical experience. And, you know, that's very challenging. Um, so I think those two things are really going to, um, unfortunately affect IMGs, but, um, Hopefully with COVID, you know, that, that will get better. But with the integrated internship, I think we're, what we're going to have to do is really have these students come and do clinical rotations so that um, to, for, our, for our medicine colleagues. Yeah, it just seems like the, the value of face-to-face interactions for both groups of applicants that we just talked about, I feel like that can't be understated because getting to know them as individuals and what they're capable of clinically and research-wise, I just feel like that can go such a long way in um, increasing the chances of matching. Does it make a difference to you if they did a residency in their home country? That was a specific question that was also asked. An ophthalmology residency. You know, one thing that program directors often look at is when they apply for a residency is the time away from clinical care. So usually, we said they do do a research year, so it can be one to two years. And, you know, when I sort of... Um, Council IMGs in terms of I always recommend that two years should be the maximum amount of research they do because beyond that people you're you're too removed from clinical care. So while I think you know it's great if they did a residency and had that experience, it's really when they come here. I think within two years you need to have you, you know you need to apply for a residency and and so that you're not so you if you're the more you, the more years you're away from it, the less programs are going to like that. So again, I think one to two years of research maximum. And whether you did a residency or not, I, I think is sort of, um, you know, if you do, if we did have a, a while ago, we had an IMG at Wilmer who had done his residency um, in his home country. And he was one of the best residents because he had all the experience. But um, I think that's uh, rarer nowadays. Um, so, Well, thank you all very much. That's those of the questions of the general category. I think we did mention, I came up a little bit, the elephant in the room, coronavirus and COVID-19, specifically for this year's application cycle. We've already talked a little bit now about how it'll affect those coming from other countries. But for American-based students especially, how will – this is going to be, a, am sure, lots of comments about how this is going to be affecting these, this upcoming application cycle – I can, I can just start off. I think there's going to be, it's going to be a completely different world of interviewing. I think this, this cycle, one of the big changes, I think just first off logistically is timing. So uh, as you probably know, the SF match calendar has been sort of shifted by about two weeks. So the CAS sort of target deadline is September 15th as opposed to the beginning of September. Um, rank list, list submission deadline is the end of January instead of the middle and then match is in February as opposed to middle January. So I think this is all intended to recognize that applicants are probably going to, um, their own timelines have been shifted. They, it's possible that they haven't been able to complete the projects that they were working on or rotations that they were planning on completing. And so um, this is kind of a, an, an intention with the intention to um, allow applications to be as complete as possible before submission. And then the second point um, that I'm sure all of us have comments on is the virtual interview, which is, um, I think, the first time that any of us have ever done this. Um, and all of our interviews are going to be completely virtual, and we're all trying to figure out ways in which to make that as sort of high-yield as possible. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really hard for an applicant to gauge the culture and to get a feel for the place. So it's going to be extremely important for them to have as much face time as possible with the residents. 
on Zoom, of course, <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the interview day, and, and hopefully meet as many faculty members as they can during the interview day. If it's not possible for them to have enough time on the interview day to speak to the residents, then I think the programs are going to have to make their residents available to talk to the applicants at a different time. And if the residents are willing to talk to applicants, then that's a good sign for the program. Because if they're enthusiastic about the program, then then that's a good sign. Yeah, I'm, and uh, with the virtual interview season, we are doing a lot of preparation ahead of time. So our website, we, you know, we have to make sure it's up to date. So we've revamped that. The, the graduate medical education at our school is sort of giving guidelines for all programs. So we're doing a virtual tour of Hopkins um, and for, for all applicants. And then we'll have one specific for Wilmer. I think, like Jess said, we need to have make sure we're still going to have our dinner the night before, but it's not going to be a dinner. But they'll have a social session with only the residents where they can talk. And then on the day of the um, interview, they're going to have breakout sessions with residents so they can ask all the questions they need to. So, um, you know, I think there's some advantages, right? So the residents will, or the medical students won't have to spend a lot of money on um, applications. I heard that SF Match is going to limit the number of interviews that some students can do on one day, which I think is good. So that's going to prevent um, students from sort of trying to interview at like at 50 places, which could hurt others. So these are the, some of the adjustments we're making. Now, one challenge. So I thought that um, one of my uh, current residents said, well, is there going to be an opportunity for a second look? Because, you know, I wouldn't want to rank a program that I've never um, visited. But it turns out, at least at our institution, there's going to be a policy where no one can do second looks, even if they're local, because it's going to give some students an unfair advantage. So I really think we're just going to have to do everything virtually and be fair to all students, just make everything available online as much as possible and give them sort of lots of time with the residents as well as an opportunity to contact the residents outside of the interview day. Great. Thanks for those comments. So, you know, but definitely when COVID comes back, um, we can, I think I'd love if we hear more comments about it. Um, but moving on kind of the next section, the broad section is personal statements. So the first question is, how much do you weigh personal statements when you're considering an application? And if anyone has examples of particularly memorable personal statements for better or worse. So I don't actually consider the personal statement that highly during the screening process to get the interview. But I know that my faculty colleagues read it very closely before the interview once the person has already been invited. And that's just because of the sheer volume of applications I have to get through. I mean, I'm going to focus on reading the letters of recommendation. The personal statements, as long as they've got good grammar, they know how to write, that's, that's what I care about. And then I don't really read their stories unless they're extremely interesting. But I, I don't focus that much on the personal statement during the screening process. I, I agree completely. I feel like a lot of what's much of what's written in the personal statement is often reiterated in either the um, list of activities or list of research or in the letters of recommendation. So as an initial screen, it's not something that I personally put that much weight in. But as Jess was saying, I think during the interview process, it can kind of lead to some gems that can allow for a connection and, and lead to some interesting conversations. Exactly. And I've never, I've never had the situation where it sort of made or, you know, was like a make or break in terms of offering the interview or even ranking the applicant, you know, like it can help if it's sort of, um, you know, a little unique. And I think, um, like Jess was saying, if it's, if it's poorly written, that definitely can hurt. But, you know, most, most of the time it's not poorly written and it's grammatically correct. So I think, uh, Again, I think um, I, I would say I don't put a huge emphasis on it, but it is nice to sort of tell your story, um, anything unique, and make it creative because they do start to sound the same at some point. <laughs> I guess there goes my little cottage industry plans for a personal statement revision essay. <laughs> not too much of a market for that. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know for everybody out there to not waste their money on us. Um, <laughs> Another specific question, maybe it's a bit uh, too specific, but somebody asked that they, if they have a family history or personal history of eye disease, and it is what made them interested in ophthalmology to begin with, is that something that they can mention in an application or a personal statement? Uh, Seems like people have gotten conflicting advice about that. You know, I don't really think that it would hurt to mention it unless it's a hereditary eye disease that is going to inevitably 
result in declining vision during your working years. And, and then that's only because ophthalmology is such a visual subspecialty. And it would be really challenging to be even a medical ophthalmologist, much less a surgeon with poor vision. But, you know, I read a lot of personal statements where someone says, oh, my grandmother went blind from glaucoma or my grandfather went blind from AMD. And that's not a problem for us. Yes, I, I would agree yeah, that I agree. it should not be a, it should not be a, applicants should be able to, certainly if that's a compelling reason of why they went into ophthalmology, they should be able to, um, to write it freely in their personal statement. And personally, I, you know, I wouldn't hold it against them. Um, you know, if they got through medical school and, you know, were able to perform well, and um, even if they go into ophthalmology, I think there are, you know, I think like that, for example, there's some people check stereo vision as part of that, as part of the application. Some programs do, I mean, we don't, but I do think, like Jess said, you do need to get through the basic surgeries, but there should be some accommodation for disabilities as well. So I do think um, applicants shouldn't worry about that. And they should tell us what compelled, what was the compelling reason why they went into ophthalmology sincerely and, and not worry about us sort of judging them wrongly. I agree. You know, I think that leads a, kind of into another um, another question, and it sounds like we've already had an answer, but there's one user who was told by certain faculty to not discuss why they're going to ophthalmology in their personal statement, but it sounds like everyone on this call agrees that you should discuss why you want to go into ophthalmology in your personal statement. Is that right? It's hard to imagine what else you'd write about, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think I think the I think the narrative, like the personal narrative of what brought someone to where they are today, and you know specifically yeah. to that particular interview or to that particular application, I think I think that's probably the intention of the personal statement. It's certainly what I expect to see. So so I think answering the question why ophthalmology is, is perfectly appropriate. Exactly. And what not, you shouldn't recycle your medical school personal statement why you became a physician in general. We want to know specifically right, right. ophthalmology. Right. So. Right. Yeah, makes sense. So we'll move on then to the next category of questions relating again to testing. And I know we've talked a bit about how step one is, is going to be prioritized much less, if at all, in the future. But for this cycle, or those who may still be making the decision about how to strategize things between step one and step two scores, we have a couple of questions. One person asked this, that if they didn't do well on step one, and they were told to do well on step two, how much does step two really factor in? And I assume that it's not up for I, I know that there's talk about step one not really factoring in anymore, but is step two having that those same discussions? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one time where we say um, to take to do to take step two. If you didn't do well on step one, step two is sort of a way to redeem yourself, and it is more clinically oriented. So I think it's more relevant in some ways. So yes, if, if there's a if there's a low step one score, if I see a really good step two score that for me sort of is very reassuring. Now, I think step one becoming fast fail is going to make programs look at step two more for the when it's available. Um, so for the future years, eventually they said step two may become pass fail. But I do um, think that people are going to shift it toward taking step two earlier. So because programs are going to use it for a surrogate as long as it's not pass fail. Yeah, I personally think that step two is more reflective of a physician's clinical judgment than step one is. And I think that it correlates more to a resident's clinical performance as well. That being said, most applicants do not take step two before they submit their application. And so we don't factor it in unless they did take it. Yeah, and, and just to kind of dovetail on that, I think um, just to kind of circle back to COVID, I think if applicants had a plan to take step two um, that could have been derailed by COVID. And I think that a lot of us uh, on the program director side are understanding of that and that perhaps they had the intention to take step two to, you know, kind of make up for a step one score that wasn't ideal. And, and I think we all recognize that that may not have been possible in this cycle. Um, and, and then just to kind of lead into our next question, are you, as program directors, going to view step one differently this cycle? Um, the question we got was, do you think it'll be more emphasized because it'll be less face, um, face-to-face time because of the pandemic, whether that's at the interview or fewer away rotations, 
Or do you think it's going to be de-emphasized because it's about to become pass-fail? I don't think anything's going to change until it becomes pass-fail. But just going back to to why we why we care about step scores at all, honestly, what we really care about as program directors is written and oral board passing rates. And that's because our program's ACGME certification depends on that. So we kind of use step scores as a surrogate to see if someone is going to, you know, be a good enough test taker to pass their oral and written boards on the first try, because that's what our programs are graded on. But ultimately, does that mean that you're going to be a good doctor if you have an amazing step score? No. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, I do think, though, the fact that it did go to pass-fail is showing us as program directors, like, we are not going to be able to emphasize this in the future. So for me this year, I don't think it's certainly not going to be more important. And I think in my head, it's going to be, um, as I screen the applications, I'm going to put less emphasis on it. Okay. Yeah, and I, I will say this, you know, I think that there was a question about whether they will be further emphasized due to the limited face-to-face. Um, oftentimes, by the time our applicants get to the interview process, the step score is sort of an afterthought because they're here and we're meeting them and they're, you know, we're getting to know them as human beings as opposed to pieces of paper. Um, so I think the limited face-to-face interaction isn't really going to affect the, you know, how the step score um, is involved in my personal decision-making process. Hopefully that allays a lot of people's concerns then. Appreciate those answers. The next category goes to letters of recommendation. And I guess the usual question is always, what makes a letter of recommendation stand out in particular? And we can go from there. Um, any elements of a good standout letter of recommendation for each of you? I think first it's how well they know the applicant. So if they say they did like a one to two week rotation, for me, that's already telling me that the letter writer doesn't know the applicant well. So you want, they want to, you want to get letters from people who know you well and have worked with you preferably for about four weeks or more. Um, you know, I think the longer the better, the more in depth they can be. Um, we do like superlatives like in the top some percent, but at some point, like I think one of the problems with the standardized letter of recommendations that have not been really widely adopted, um, by, by faculty is because it asks you to rate them in the top 1%, top 5%. And then sometimes people just check top 1%, right? And we know that not everyone can be in that top 1%. So, so super little to help, but I think, you know, the better the letter writer knows, the more sincere it is, the, be- the better it is. So when they, when you ask for letters, you have to make sure it's somebody who knows you well, who can write a strong letter. One of the things that I like to do is look at the non-ophthalmology letter. Um, because, you know, in, medical students don't typically know a lot of clinical ophthalmology, so there's not a lot to comment on in terms of their clinical exam skills. But if you have a letter from your sub-I that says this per- person functioned at the level of an intern, then I know that they're probably going to be a good doctor. And that's what I care about more because we can make you into a good ophthalmologist, but you should already kind of know how to be a doctor after internship. Um, or after medical school. I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, I really, in letters of recommendation, I really like um, I like it when letter writers can cite specific examples of sort of excellence or going above and beyond, and and give me examples of exactly what that meant. Um, it sort of allows us to get a, a more colored in picture of that applicant, I think. Um, and so back to Fasica's point, I think the people that can do that for you are the people that know you best. And so, um, you know, if it's a choice between getting a letter for someone who knows you really well and can comment on, you know, uh, examples of excellence versus someone who's like super famous, but, you know, you met for a couple of days and, and can't really comment on that, I think I would err on the side of um, getting a letter from someone who, who knows you well and can comment on that. You know, kind of along the a similar thought, this was asked by someone who does not did not have a home program. Their question was, how do you weigh letters from private practice ophthalmologists versus ones done with an academic ophthalmologist at some rotation in a residency program? Another thing that they suggested was that because they don't have a home program, they are and because of COVID, they're now unable to do a ways. 
But um, I think we actually talked right before this recording about how um, that that second part may not actually be true. So I don't think we can comment on on both of those aspects. Exactly. I think the National Coalition for Physicians has specified that you can do away electives if you do not have a home program. They recommend sort of the nearest medical school. Obviously, you know, depending on how affected you are by COVID, that may, um, you know, that may change uh, or, or may be different. But I do think that medical schools, um, the closest medical school to um, to students without, usually they already have a good relationship with students nearby. But I think um, I, I think as long as their institutions can accommodate the students, they will. So you can still do away rotations. And then the other question about a, a letter of recommendation for a, from a private practitioner versus someone in the academics. Um, I think I don't think it makes that big of a difference to me. I mean, one thing that um, Jess pointed out was that it is hard to sort of impress someone with clinical ophthalmology just because it's so specialized. And, you know, as a medical student, the knowledge is, is limited. So I do think, you know, generally, if you've worked with them on a case report or a research project, those letters are much stronger. So um, that's the only caveat, but otherwise it can be from anyone who knows the applicant well. I agree. I, I think that the most important thing is to have information about the performance of that um, applicant and whether it's from private practice or from an academic program. It, for me personally, that doesn't matter. Much appreciated again, everyone. And we can move on to the next category then about both about interviews specifically, but also kind of how to approach programs in general through an application process. The first question comes from another student who submitted it to us. That's if you have a dream program that you want to reach out to, the student asks, what's the best timing to reach out to them? And how would each of you prefer that that be done? You know, sometimes when we get away students, that kind of lets us know that they are interested. And I, I do think that helps because I will certainly, if I meet a student um, in the OR who's from another institution, you know, I always try to, you know, ask, you know, get to know them. And so it's very, you know, it's nice to put a face to the application. And if, you know, I remember them as particularly strong, that really, um, you know, I, I'm really inclined to give them an interview. And I actually review all the students who do aways myself to, um to to just um especially out of that application pool and then but of course this year again we mentioned that that's going to be somewhat limited so i think um you know so i think that's going to that's going to be a challenge i really like to just to, to the point about like how you prefer correspondence the way i what i do at the beginning of every interview season is have a folder in my inbox and um i file all of the emails I get from mentors or from applicants indicating specific interest in our program so that when it comes time to review all of the applications, I have a sense of anyone who, I think Jeff mentioned this earlier, anyone who might have a specific interest in our program, either because of, you know, something about the research aspect or something about the location or, or what have you. And I think that works really well for me. So, um, receiving That's exactly emails, what I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's really, yeah. it's, it, it makes, we all get so many applicants applications and being able to sort in some, do, do, you know, do a first sift in some fashion um, is super helpful. So anyway, uh, emails work for me pretty well. Right. Emails work. It can be either from the applicant themselves or it could be from a mentor who wants to email. You know, I get a lot who are mentors email my chair and then my chair will forward, forward the email to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't really matter how it comes through, but as long as there's an interest in our program and specifically why, then we'll, we'll keep that in extra in a folder for for extra review. Mm -hmm. I think the you know I think the sooner the better. So like after the last interview date, so we offer two interview dates. So after the last interview date, we do rank pretty um, soon after that. So I think uh, it's always better to get it sooner, so that you know if there's a compelling reason, like you said, I think we do take it into account. You know, like we generally. You know, we, we try to say when we rank, it doesn't matter. You know, we, we rank just according to how we would want to rank and not whether we think the student is going to rank us higher mm -hmm. or whatnot. But, you know, I do think, like you said, if there's a if the student seems to have an interest with a specific faculty at your institute, like a research interest or like, you know, if they're interested, for instance, in public health and want to do something at our data center, um, that, that, that does sort of that does make an impact. Yeah, for us, I don't think it matters in terms of the ranking, but it definitely matters in terms of getting the interview because I'm more likely mm -hmm. to offer an interview to someone who has a specific interest. 
Um, I did, you know, we, we just interviewed them from all over West Coast, East Coast for many years. Yeah. So, but, but, you yeah. know, that is a, so some people on my, our committee this um, year did say they wanted to require secondary applications. So that you mean, you know, so if you do a secondary, that kind of shows you're, you're pretty interested in the program. Um, I was a little hesitant just, you know, in terms of adding extra work when they're already, um, you know, have a lot going on, but I don't know what the rest of Jess and Nandini, I don't know what you think about sort of secondary applications and sort of expressing an additional interest. You know, I thought about that as well, but then I realized it's not only extra work for the app, <laughs> extra work for us. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Jess. I think it would add uh, an extra layer of work. I don't know how much value they would add to or whether, um, you know, I, I it is unclear to me how much value um, secondary to that. So I've uh, I've not gone there with our program. Except for the work of showing that they are indeed that interesting. Correct. Yes, that's true. That's true. Well, in any case, we're very sorry if your emails are a little more flooded after this <laughs> broadcast. <laughs> um, so th- this next question is kind of more of a mechanics question of the interview process, but someone was curious, do you send interview invites out as, as a wave? Like do you send like, you know, wave one, two, and three, or do you send them all, all at once? I think different programs are different. I mean, yeah. for me, I send them out in waves. It just, I can't possibly review all 500 at once, you know? So I just review and then I go ahead and send out some and then I send out some more. It's not super organized. But I make sure that I send out the right number in the end. We invite all our inter- uh, applicants to interview on the same day, and um, you know we use Interview Broker. So um, actually, we send an email about 24 hours before we they, we can uh, we allow them to we let them use the Interview Broker just to give them a heads up that they got an interview, and they can look out for an Interview bro- Broker at which time they can sign up for the day they want the interview. And and we found. Um, Actually, Dr. Boland, who was my, the former program director at Wilmer, did that, which was very nice. And we found within 10 minutes, all the spots were filled. <laughs> so it's, uh, so people definitely appreciated the interview broker rather than sort of in, in, um, emailing the program coordinator. We, I, I do something similar to just a first wave of sort of subset of the interview spots that we would allocate and then kind of subsequent waves after that, depending on people who um, cancel their interviews or you know, choose to reschedule, et cetera. And I do, I do add a few interviews. Like I'll always get, you know, some faculty, you know, emailing on behalf of their students saying that, you know, this is a really excellent student that you didn't choose to interview. So, you know, so I do, I have a, a few additional spots that I'll add for, you know, very compelling reasons. So. Uh, another question we got fairly recently was this with the, SF match timeline now delayed to a target date of September 15th. Should students still try to aim to submit by August 15th as previous years to be considered in the quote-unquote first batch of applicants? For my program, there is really no advantage to submitting earlier rather than later. I know that um, different programs have slightly different sort of target dates or, or deadlines. And so I think we're all a little bit different, but for me at Davis, uh, there's no real advantage to submitting earlier rather than at the actual deadline. And we have an internal, um, which is on our website, we have an internal deadline of September 4th this year. So, um, you know, we don't accept applications after September 4th. So I do think um, sort of mid to late August would be the, you know, you want to submit it at that time period. I wouldn't go into September and you know, Dr. Miller, he was uh, head of the admissions committee before me for 30 years, and he always said there's a clear difference between the applicants who apply early versus, you know, at the very tail end. So I think, you know, you want to be in the beginning, middle, but certainly not at the tail end. And I always get a few emails every year being, I, they missed our internal deadline. Can I be considered? But, you know, um, you know, again, we have 400, over 450 applicants, so it's it's just hard to consider someone when you have so many other applications. So I would say, you know, I always tell my med students to you know, aim for, for earlier. In terms of the actual interview itself, I don't know if, uh, if anyone can talk about times that they felt that they really connected with the resident during the interview or interview went particularly well and what you thought made that happen, either you or like, or a colleague, an applicant. Yeah. I don't know what I said. A resident. Oh yeah. I mean an applicant <laughs> resident to be. 
Um, so it's interesting. So we we have had our interview season sort of at different times. So last year it was a little bit later. Um, the year before it was earlier, like um, sort of October, early November. So we sort of saw the applicants at the we were the first interview for many of the applicants. So you know we could. There's definitely a difference. They, they I feel like later on they warm up, um, and uh, but then you can come up across as rehearsed. And I do find some of my committee members will. You know, if they're if it sounds too rehearsed, they'll comment on that. You know, so I think there's sort of a in between the, between being nervous and practicing versus sounding too well rehearsed. I think for me, I just look for sincerity in the applicant. So I think uh, I think if you're sincere and and sort of yourself, that the interview will go well. But if you're sort of trying to, um, you know, if you seem too rehearsed and practiced it too much, then that can come across as uh, as insincere. Yeah, I think being sincere and genuine is tough, but but important, but tough when you're like stressed out and in a suit and exhausted and you've been flying and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, that may be mitigated this year because you only have to wear a suit top, I guess, or, and you're not going to be flying everywhere and hopefully not be super exhausted by all the travel. I, I do think that one of the things that makes her, you know, a, a connection during an interview is just mutual curiosity, like the, the resident, excuse me, the resident applicant being genuinely curious in the program and the interviewer being genuinely curious in getting to know the applicant. And so it kind of goes both ways. But I think that in my sort of experience, I can remember episodes of connection that involved both people being curious about one another or one another's kind of program. Yeah, well, that's a great point. And I think, you know, at the very end, everyone usually asks, so what questions do you have? And I find that sort of the canned questions, which don't show a lot of curiosity, such as like, what changes do you envision, which are just specific, they're not specific for your program. You know, I feel I don't, I, I like when an applicant sort of, you know, asks a question and that reflects that they have, you know, researched the program and sort of thought about why it would be a good fit for them rather than sort of generic canned questions. Yeah, one one thing that I've noticed about interviews that impress me are generally that the applicant is very enthusiastic and has a high energy level. And I do realize, as an introvert myself, I realize that that takes a lot more effort from some people than from others. Um, and so I try not to not to overweigh that because I do think that there are introverts who make fantastic doctors, and sometimes they don't necessarily come across that well in an interview. But I just remember, like, the ones that I connect with are the ones who are, like, smiling and enthusiastic and have a high energy level. And I think the interview is quite important, to be honest, because I have seen committee members sort of um, move people up and down based on their interview. So although I would like to say Mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter that much, I think it actually, you know, for us at least, it's, it's pretty critical in the whole process because, like you said, once you make it to the table... Uh, you know, once you make it for the interview, you're sort of on the same level playing field. And then, you know, the interview sort of helps distinguish you. So um, it is it is important. I remember that feeling of mortification the first time I was in some committee like that, thinking of how I must have come across earlier. <laughs> it's a lot easier from the other side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Much appreciated. We can go on to the next general category of Program qualities and things that uh, potentially what qualities might an applicant value or should an applicant value about a program because this really comes from how everybody thinks they have to ask about things like surgical numbers or pay attention to program reputation. But we know that there's more to a program's culture and strengths than just those things. What specifically might you want an applicant to know about that might be important other elements that they should be asking about or should be finding out or prioritizing that you might be working very hard to strengthen and build at your programs? I think it's important to find out if the program has a resident clinic, a resident-run clinic, whether that be at the VA or at a county hospital that they're not only working in private faculty clinics because residents need to have some autonomy and they need to have some location at which they feel like they can truly take ownership of their patients. Another important thing is 
I think it's important to look at the number of fellows in the program and at the number of residents, and also to ask the residents who is actually doing most of the teaching. Who is teaching the resident directly? Who is staffing the resident in the operating room? Is it the fellows or is it experienced attendings? Or are the experienced attendings mostly staffing the fellows and then expecting the fellows to teach the residents? The size of the program may matter to some people. Some people may feel more comfortable in a large program with 50, 70 attendings, but others may feel more comfortable in a more intimate environment with fewer attendings. Fewer attendings where you might get to know each attending a little bit better, but then you may not have as much clinical experience in terms of learning from a lot of varied faculty. The culture of a program is really important, and the best way to find that out is just to talk to the residents, find out how happy the residents are, and then also to make sure that there's coverage in every subspecialty that's necessary for ACGME credentialing, or accreditation, I should say. Yeah, I mean, Jeff, Jeff pretty much named everything that's important. I mean, I would say particularly the faculty investment in education and the mentorship, I think is one of the most important things that you can get out of a residency because you'll form sort of lifelong bonds and people who will support you. So I think looking at um, that and, you know, not only the program director, but other faculty. Um, so that, that for me, I think is a, was very important in choosing uh, my residency and part of the reason why I stayed at Wilmer. One of the things, I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, one of the things that um, when I speak to medical students, I kind of ask of them, and sometimes of our applicants as well during interviews, is kind of thinking about their own learning style and the learning environment in which they thrive the most, because I think that's something that differs among programs. Some are have a lot of oversight and some um, have, have less so. And there are some people that thrive in situations where there is a lot of oversight and some thrive in situations where there's um, more independence in learning. And so I think asking yourself that question and then looking at the program to see whether th there's a fit for your learning style, um, I think can be very valuable too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, kind of along those lines, you know, all, I, all three of you trained at yourselves at residency programs that have, you know, excellent reputations. Is there anything specifically from the programs that you trained at as residents that um, you particularly valued that, um, that, that you would look for if you were to had to do a residency again, for example? I think Foss already talked about this, but mentorship for faculty. Ultimately, it's nice to work at an institution where the reputation is really, really great, really amazing. But if you can't form connections with the faculty, then what good is the reputation of the program? So I was fortunate enough to work with some really fantastic faculty mentors who have kind of been role models for me um, going into academic ophthalmology. And the other thing that I was really lucky with that you can't always predict is who you match with. So a lot of times the residency class that you match with kind of makes or breaks your experience in residency. So if you get along with your class and you click, you could be friends for life. I mean, I, I met Nandini, um, I worked with Nandini in, in fellowship at, at Duke, and that's how we got to know each other pretty well, although we kind of knew each other a little bit before. And then I met Fosica in fellowship, and, you know, we're still friends. So that sort of connection, because ophthalmology is such a small field, a lot of people know a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, on that note, I'm grateful that you took Ben to residency, Dr. Chow. <laughs> <laughs> I might edit that out. And, but and me. Thank you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I think you did a better job picking Ben, but... <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Stay, stay in script, buddy. <laughs> the camaraderie is very important, right? Because it's uh, three years and now going to be well, four I years. think that one of the things I valued a lot about my training program was just... It, it was very... This was sort of a vague cultural intangible thing, but I'll just say it. Um, it was it was very clear the centrality of teaching and education to the mission of the institution. Like it wasn't like education was an afterthought and it was a primarily research place or a primarily, you know, sort of clinical place. It, education was, was, you know, it was clear that it was one of the central pillars of the institution. And um, it just sort of, it was in the way that the chair and the program director um, regarded the residents and the residency and the fellows. Um, and I think that kind of trickled into the rest of the faculty and, and the rest of the trainees. So 
Um, that's super vague. It's something that I am trying to cultivate in my own program, but I, I felt it as a resident. Absolutely. And I think the camaraderie, as um, Jess and Nandini said, is so important. I mean, it's it's three years and now four of your life. Um, so I think how you interact with them, um, it requires everyone to be a team player. And, you know, it's you're they're literally you become like family. You spend so much time with each other um, with the re- with the residents. So and then also um, I do remember faculty um, when I was a resident, sort of no matter how busy they were, in clinic or with research or whatever other responsibilities they had, they would never let you know that. And they would always answer questions, whether it had to do with a patient or your own research. And they would always make time for um, residents and medical students. So as Nandini said, the emphasis on education at the, at the institution is critical. The next question then is, what are the strengths of the program that you're, you know, you just, everyone just talked about the program that they were residents at. So now what are the strengths of the program that you're now directing? And if you're willing, what are some of the weaknesses? Yeah, I think, I mean, so for me, I trained at the same program I'm a program director at. And I think my, yeah. my program director was um, JP Dunn. And a lot of the things that um, he taught me as a resident, um, like Nandadi said, I try to cultivate in the program. So I would say our biggest strengths are um, the number of faculty invested in education. So we have a program director, a vice chair of education, two associate program directors. And then I have about in every subspecialty, I have a division education champion. And so this person is given departmental support for the educational uh, mission for their specialty. So and so we meet um, at least four times a year, usually about six. And they're really, you know, with our vice chair, we review their goals, their educational objectives, they take formal um, education classes that are offered by Hopkins. So I think it's a really rich environment. So we, you know, our chairman always jokes that faculty at Wilmer sort of fight over who gets the resident. And, you know, we have five residents for um, the faculty to um, President ratio is uh, it's I mean the faculty way outnumber the residents so I think I think that's that's great so and then the weakness I think um, you know last this year at AUPO um, this past ge- um, January I heard um, Dr. Haller give a talk and she was sort of saying how you know we always have to reach right like it's never enough you can so I do think. I'm constantly, um, you know, as with my team, trying to make improvements for our residents, whether it be, you know, the number of presentations they give, trying to provide more resources for them to do research, trying to um, help their ED experience be more smooth. So I do think, you know, programs, I think, you know, it's never going to be perfect. And we just always, as the leadership, need to advocate for them and try to make their lives better. I think there's been a shift in graduate medical education in general where, you know, the, the days of um, working 80 hours, being all about work, nothing about wellness is, is gone. So I think there's been a big shift at our institution more towards wellness um, and, you know, encouraging them to do things outside, outside of work and, and so forth. So I think it's, it's, it's a positive change. We have parental leave policies that, you know, are really in favor, you know, really sort of emphasize the importance of, of supporting our trainees. So I'm sort of proud of where graduate medical education um, has shifted in general and in particular, um, you know, at Hopkins. Yeah, at Yale, we, we are a smaller program definitely than Wilmer. I would call, I would describe our program as a resident-oriented program. We only accept two fellows a year, one in retina and one in glaucoma. And so really our chairman, all of our educational initiatives all focus on the residents. And pretty much every decision that we make in terms of changing the residency program comes from the question, the core question, how would this affect and improve resident education? So we definitely value education above service. And I think that we're a culture that encourages critical thinking and supports research. And this all really comes from the top down from our chairman. One of the positives that came out of this recent pandemic is that our chairman started to meet very regularly, sometimes daily and now weekly with the residents. So he knows them really quite well. Well, he has chair rounds with them. So he mentors them in research and and other things as well. One of the other strengths about our program, I, I think, is that our faculty really get along quite well with each other, and and we're very diverse. And that's one of the things that we're proud of. But having faculty that get along with each other obviously makes my job as a program director much easier. <laughs> also, at, at Yale, we're, we're similar to Wilmer in that our, our GME is extremely supportive of residents. We have a lot of initiatives uh, regarding resident wellness. I think the residents have been extremely happy with how Yale GME has responded 
and protected them during this pandemic. Things that we're working on, we're always trying to improve our program for sure. Um, I think that in the Northeast, it's a little bit more challenging to get surgical numbers here compared to the rest of the country. So um, we have a great wet lab right now at our VA, which is uh, fully equipped um, with an IC simulator and a FACO machine and all of that. But we're trying to build a larger wet lab at our main campus. But we're definitely not going to ever be a program where you're going to graduate with 300, 400 primary cataracts. But we don't really want to be that type of program either. We want to be a program that's well-rounded, that people learn how to think critically and basically can do whatever they want to do after after graduation. Uh, to Jess's point, I think UC Davis is also sort of a small to medium-sized um, program and department, and we have typically four clinical fellows at a time. So the clinical and surgical education does tend to be resident-centric. I'm really proud of the cataract training that our, our residents get. I just think our anterior segment surgeons are, are so wonderful and um, start our residents off in the first year. Um, and so the cataract education is spread out through the, the three years, which I think is just nice and deliberate and um, I think one of the strengths of our program. Um, our residents are ready to launch into practice if they wish or, or off to their fellowships, and, and um, they've all been very well positioned to do so. In terms of things we're working on, um, I think, again, with a smaller program and department, sometimes you don't have multiple clinical or surgical faculty in every subspecialty, and we are in the process of, of hiring to sort of fill out um, some of those subspecialties. Um, I think the nice thing of having, you know, a small number of faculty is that they get to know you as a resident really well. Um, I think one of the limitations is that you, you know, have a small subset of surgical skills that you're learning as opposed to a broad range from, from various different faculty. So I think our department is working on um, hiring and expanding uh, to fill out some of the subspecialties that are uh, represented a little bit less. You know, thanks for those those very honest answers. So for our last question, just kind of reflecting on your own experiences, if you had to go through this whole application process yourself all over again, back when, you know, you were a medical student, is there anything that you would have done differently for yourself that you wish you knew now that you would have done differently? Or adapted to changes that you're presiding over and kind of um, seeing in the process too. You know, it was honestly a long time ago. <laughs> uh, Jeff, you're dating yourself. Dr. Chow. <laughs> I am, I am. Um, so so I, I, uh, I think I was interviewing in 2000 and, was it 2005 or 2006? I can't quite remember. But anyway, um, I, I think that I didn't know all of these things that were important to, to look for. Everybody knows, everybody talks about surgical numbers, but I didn't realize all the other things that were qualities that I should look for in a program. So that's that's pretty much the only thing that I would have done differently. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the application process was getting to meet all the other applicants on the trail. And some of them, you know, you remember and then you meet again in fellowship and then you meet again as a faculty member and as an attending. And those connections are kind of formed for life. But I think that's one of the things that's going to be missed out on this year. Um, it's going to be a little bit harder for applicants to make connections with each other just virtually. Um, and I, I think that's kind of a sad thing. I agree completely with what Jess said. I think that when I was interviewing, um, I, I don't think I realized how small the world of ophthalmology is. Um, and so I didn't, I, I probably could have stood to have taken more time to, to make more connections as I was doing interviews, um, just because, you know, you do end up seeing these folks, again, either in your residency class or in fellowship or in jobs or, or whatever. So it is sad that this year it's going to be more difficult to make those connections, which I think are, are quite, you know, meaningful. And so, sorry, just for me, I would say that um, I totally agree with Jess and me. I think it's, I, I only interviewed at about four, I um for maximum five programs. So I do regret that because I think, uh, you know, it's your time to um, see all different programs and their strengths um, and also meet um, pe people who you'll know for the rest of your career. So going back, I, I would interview at more places. I mean, I probably would have still, um, you know, stayed at Wilmer, but uh, I think uh, it's your chance to sort of um, explore as much as you can, see other um, wonderful departments and um, 
really look for um, you know different strengths and different programs. And I, I and I did go away for fellowship to Miami before coming back to Omar, and that was um, you know an invaluable experience. And like Jess said, I met um, wonderful colleagues who we're still friends with. So um, I think it is good to sort of in, interview at um, at least I would say um, I would say you know eight to ten places um, for you know at, at least. Boss, did you only interview at four to five because you were you were geographically limited? No, I mean, I, I had no limitations. Like I was not, you know, like I, it was just, I, I just sort of had convinced myself I wanted to stay at Walmart and it was a great fit. But, like, but I didn't even, I just remember like I didn't interview at Miami, although I had the chance to, which I don't think was, I would do it. If I had to go back, I would interview, I would interview <laughs> at, at all the places, you know? Um, so yeah. yeah, I think I was just closed minded thinking that there would be only one place for me. And if I went back, I would see that, you know, there's a lot of different strengths at different programs. And maybe I would, I would probably would have still ended up at Wilmer, but I think going through that process and seeing programs, I remember when I'm for fellowship, you know, they would ask, did you interview her as a, as a resident? And, uh, you know, I think, uh, for fellowship, I definitely realized there were, you know, there were different, different programs for, um, for me. Great. Well, we really appreciate all three of our wonderful guests and teachers for sticking on with this longer phone call, longer interview, especially for the, those of us on the East Coast, almost uh, coming up to midnight. Really thank <laughs> everybody for um, this great episode. I think a lot of our the students out there will really appreciate and gain a lot from the wisdom and experience that you're sharing with them today. And there was one other question that we were going to ask, but I think actually it replicates the question that Dr. Schreeder asked in the uh, Straight from the Cutter's Mouth episode, which was, why did each of you choose ophthalmology? Since it's coming up and getting kind of late, we'll just refer to that episode for each of your answers to that one. <laughs> but thank you all very much again. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. Great talking to you guys, too. Yeah. Yes, that was a ton of fun for us. And um, I know, like, just talking to med students, I've talked to you already about the application process. I hope that this will really help a a lot of people across the country and feeling better or knowing what's ahead of them. So thanks. Hope everyone has a good night. And hey, everybody, this is your post-credits reminder to... um, Hey, everybody, this is your post-credits reminder that if you'd like to help us with that survey that will ask you, the medical student, about how COVID-19 is impacting your application cycle, you can find a link to that survey in the description below. That survey is being done in collaboration with Dr. Jay Schreeder, straight from the cutter's mouth, who we mentioned before already did an episode with this specific panel you heard from about medical education, which we highly encourage you to listen to. I thought it was a great interview. And it turns out that around, probably around the same time that we recorded this episode, he also recorded a uh, episode that had a very similar topic. We also interviewed a panel of program directors. It was a different panel. Uh, I believe Nandini Gandhi was on both of our panels. But if you're interested in this topic, then please check out his episode, which it sounds like will probably come out late June or early July in that podcast again is straight from the cutter's mouth you can find it on itunes and pretty much anywhere you can find uh podcasts but he was nice enough to uh, let our episode come out a little bit before his to give some breathing room that's all we have for this week we hope you enjoyed and we'll see you next time